Hey everybody, welcome to the Muckrake Podcast. I am your co-host Nick Houselman and Jared Yates Sexton is not with us today. He is a little bit busy, so he left me to my own devices. And of course, when that happens, I need to bring on a good friend of mine, Jason Needleman, who you've probably heard before on the pod. And if you haven't, he is a professor of political science at the University of Laverne. And right now he's also editing a book called Frameworks of Time in Rousseau, coming out next year through Rutledge. And Jason, uh, thank you so much for coming on and joining me. Great to be here. Thank you for having me again. Absolutely. Well, you're coming back because the other times have been so good and informative uh, and layered uh, and in a definitely a, an interesting way that complements what Jerry likes to bring into this, to, to the equation as well. But I'm excited to get into some stuff. And I think we need to kind of jump off here with a New York Times article that was written today uh, by the usual suspects, Maggie Haberman being one of them, that sort of outlines what a Trump presidency in 2025 or beginning in 2025 would look like. And um, it sounds like you might be a little bit frightened by what you read. Is that fair? A fair assessment? <laughs> I, I think it's like you guys talk about on the podcast all the time. I think it's stuff that we already knew, but when you see it in print with the specific plans, um, it just, yeah, kind of focuses the mind. And um, that's a little bit like what they're trying to do right now um, with the, with the in, uh, interviewing uh Jared and all the people around Trump to get them to say that he knew he lost the election. We all know that already, but it makes a difference when you see it, you know, on paper uh, through witness testimony. And this article clearly doesn't get published unless people um, in and around the campaign are willing to talk to the press. And I mean, we even have this guy, is it John McAtee, John McEntee? who, yeah, is just going on the record saying that the plan is to essentially dismantle separations of power. Um, he says in the article, quote, our current executive branch was conceived of by liberals for the purpose of promulgating liberal policies. There is no way to make the existing structure function in a conservative manner. It is not enough to get the personnel right. What's necessary is a complete system overhaul, unquote. That's basically a euphemism for saying we're going to undo the constitutional structure of the United States of America. And if you read the rest of the article, it becomes clear that the intent is to concentrate power in the executive branch. So, yeah, seeing that on paper, it's something, of course, we suspected. But seeing that on paper coming uh, from the mouths of people close to Trump, it's um, it's pretty frightening. Yeah. Yeah. And John McEntee, remember, had come up a, a number of times during the first Trump, during the, tr the Trump presidency. Uh, he had gotten fired uh, because of uh, clearances with the FBI background check and his finances. And yet, even though they, they perp walked him out of the White House with the stuff, and that was part of John Kelly's thing, uh, he was still, as happens a lot in the Trump world, you still hang around and you're still part of everything in that same way that... Um, you know, his campaign manager, um, Manafort, you know, was supposedly fired, mm -hmm. but then was still hanging around and doing all sorts of stuff with them because the grift was real. Um, I do think that's interesting. This is a piggyback on what you said. It's, uh, yeah, these articles don't get written in a vacuum. Clearly, the campaign is strategizing on how to get out certain messages and certain code words to people to make sure they understand where they are. And also, you know, the general public and the voters. Um, but, you know, the, the, the real key passage I think I wanted to read here that I grabbed was um, from Russell T. Vaught, uh, who had run the Office of Management and Budget in the Trump White House. 
He wrote, quote, what we're trying to do is identify the pockets of independence and seize them. Um, when you hear words like seize, you know, and these are not just random words, this, whatever. These are probably written out answers, I'd almost think, you know, to the authors and stuff of the, of the, uh, of the piece. Um, you know, is there any way that you can look at this as, um, uh, you know, non-nefarious? Uh, or is this simply a, uh, a description of what authoritarianism turns into? I mean, I think it's the latter. I, I mean, the only way you could see it is non-nefarious if you're a kind of a MAGA supporter and you believe of the American people. And then I guess you're going to say, yeah, you go, uh, John McEntee or, or Russell Vaught, and you find those pockets of independence and, and make sure they get purged so that nothing stands in the way of the, of the MAGA agenda. I mean, you know what's motivating this, right? It's the fact that... Um, the first time they they came in, um, you know, they didn't have complete control over personnel, especially in certain key departments. So they're trying, they're announcing that they're going to get out ahead of that should they win in, in 2020. And I mean, the other scary part of the article is that they're doing these reviews of personnel in key departments, especially justice. So they'll have a list ready to go of people, the so-called pockets of independence that they're looking to uh, purge. Um and of course, pockets of independence just translates into people who will push back against the authoritarian agenda. That's what pockets of independence denotes. You know? I, know, I want to explore that for a second, because what does it look like to figure out who these independent thinkers are? How, what methods do you use to figure that out, right? Like they, they, they started to do this and we'd heard Bannon, which is why this isn't necessarily new. Bannon, when they first took over, they were so fucking disorganized, right? They didn't, they didn't even show up. Like you hear right. these stories of all these departments and during the transition, just waiting for the Trump administration people to come in and assume the control of whatever. And no one showed up. It was sounded right. like right. something out yeah. of, um, I mean, it reminds me of, um, what was the Sean Penn movie where they're working uh, and Timothy Hutton and they end up being spies, uh, uh, there's a, there's a title of a, there's a, anyway, they, but, but you see them working like probably for like the CIA and they're underground, whatever. And they're just partying the whole time. Like there's no oversight. There's no nothing. And it kind the, of felt the, like the, that. The Falcon and the snowman. Falcon maybe the snowman. That's right. I knew there was an animal in the title. And um, <laughs> well, that's the Michael Lewis book. He, the, Michael Lewis did a book about the weather service and how they're just waiting and nobody shows up. Yeah. So I think what Bannon had said on his program, which no one had ever needs to listen to, was, you know, and this is a while ago. He's like, yeah, we are going to now from day one be ready and have all these things ready to go so that everyone's purged out of there uh, ahead of time. So, again, what, what does that look like? I guess they're going to have to do a, a questionnaire. Like, how would you end up ascertaining? No, they've done it. So that's the thing. They've done it. I believe that that's why election denialism is so central to the Trump campaign. It's not just that they believe it, that they can't accept that Trump might have lost. It's that that's a good test of loyalty, right? So the way you know if someone's a pocket of independence is if they say, well, actually, it was adjudicated 60 times in front of, you know, federal courts, and it was determined every single time that the election was legitimate. If you're still willing to say in the face of that, that the election was stolen, that shows that you're not a pocket of independence. I, I think of it like a gang initiation, you know, where you're told to do something that will bind you by virtue of the, you know, illegality of the act to the gang, no matter what. You kind of give them something that they have over you. So I think they probably have it already with the election denialism. You just go through and you look for the people who won't participate in that 
discourse. And that's the pocket of independence that you purge. Well, okay, let's go through that for a second, because, okay, in theory, they'd be scouring social media posts, right? That's a good way or any kind of quotes they might. Sure, exactly. Or just talking to people, I guess. I mean, that the thing is, it is so public and people did go on the record, either supporting or, 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 or. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, like, like Lindsey Graham and, and Ted Cruz, those guys uh, somehow, I, I don't even want, I shudder to think what they did to kind of get back on the side of Trump. But, um, well, Lindsey, we know, right? Uh, at any rate, we'll, we can put that in another discussion. Uh, but what I'm getting at is, and I don't think it's a far-fetched notion, is that it might not be enough to be scouring quotes mm-hmm. and whatever. Um, if they get into power... I don't think it's far-fetched to assume that they would then use the other tools of monitoring citizens to discover whether or not they can trust, quote-unquote, uh, the people in the uh, in the government. Oh, sure. I mean, is there any indication that that Trump would respect kind of these norms of 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 privacy and rule of law? I mean, he's a lawless man. I mean, that that's ultimately what this article is. This. Jonathan Swan, Haberman, Savage article. It's it's just kind of documenting the lawlessness of this man in this movement. And that lawlessness goes all the way to, of course, the Constitution. You know, there was, I think it was Thomas Massey. <laughs> he was this week saying, uh, well, sir, I forget who he, he was questioning. He says, you know, your 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 actions, um your 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 actions uh uh may be lawful, but they're not constitutional, something like that, you know, and of course, the Constitution is the law, it is the higher law. So, um, you know, if you violate a civil statute, or if you violate the Constitution, that is a violation of the law. Um, The Constitution is the controlling law of the country. And Donald Trump and Trumpists have no respect for either one. I mean, that's the way you get to authoritarianism is by trampling the rule of law. So fundamentally, like at the root of all of this is lawlessness, is a refusal to respect the idea of the rule of law. And it's all done in the name of the people. You know, that's why we refer to the movement as a, as a right-wing populist movement. In the name of the people, no law, you know, should be allowed to stand in the way. And that's kind of the tone of this article is these guys are saying, you know, we can't allow these artifacts of American legalism and constitutionalism to stand in the way of the, you know, what they take to be the will of the people. Yeah. And that way that's January 6th right there. Right. They, they felt like they were in the movie, the Patriot. I think Mel Gibson, that's the Patriot where they were, they're standing up to the evil British empire, you know, who they didn't want to pay their tax, those taxes anymore. And, and these were the real Patriots. Right. Um, and that's, that's why it's so uh, frightening when you have the leaders who understand this, they know like Trump knows he didn't win, but um, by the way, do we want to explore that really quickly? Because it's been popping up a little bit as far as what the plan was. Jack Smith is sort of is probing this. Um, and I talked about this before, but doesn't it didn't it seem like um, they were trying to attack this from all different angles, right, uh, to, to get Trump's to stay in the White House? And it seemed like the biggest thing that they wanted with January 6th was a delay in the counting mm-hmm. of one day. And I'm sure you're familiar with the, the, the articles in the Constitution that it, it dictates that the vice president needs to, to certify the electoral counts on, on a very specific day. Mm-hmm. Does it resonate with you that that was 
the key here and that if the tumultuousness of January 6th, which was inspired by Trump, had delayed it, then they would then have some sort of bizarre legal John Eastman-like uh, argument that they can now stop the count and go back to the states? Right. Probably it was, I mean, you know, do we want to ascribe like rational intent to these guys? I don't know. But if it was something more than just like, let's break democracy, if there was some kind of rational strategy, it was probably something like that. Let's delay the certification so that we can go back, buy ourselves some time to go back and try to make this argument for the alternate electors or convince state legislatures that they have the power to, you know, alter the outcome of the election. That most likely would have been the plan from the more rational actors. Um, it could also just be, a, you know, an insurrection against democracy. Probably you know, that Trump wasn't thinking much beyond that would be my guess. Sure. Well, OK, so that was a detour. But I wanted to get back to what we we're talking about as far as the unitary executive theory, um, which is sort of like they're trying to obliterate the the equal branches of the government. Right. That's sort of what and it's laid out pretty clearly in the article. And you know what it reminds me of? It's almost like so, you know, how a lot of these um, these right wingers sort of sat there in their chairs seething for eight years of the Obama administration probably related mostly to maybe racism, just the fact that they had a, you know, a black man was elected to the White House and he's now carrying out, which ultimately ends up being some of the more centrist at best, uh, you know, policies, right? This was not a left-wing president that was radically, you know, mm -hmm. doing stuff. And I almost feel like that seething is, could be linked to the same feeling that I think a lot of conservatives had back in 1974 when Nixon resigned. And I almost feel like that same notion of how angry they were that Nixon like gave up and resigned, like did what, you know, they let the, he let these congressmen talk him into resigning uh, when he should have fought back. And, you know, your friend of mine, Dick Cheney, was directly involved in this because it seems like he's the architect of this. Right. When he got in, to become a VP with, with Bush the second, it seemed like that was his M.O. from the beginning. And it had to be rooted in what happened with Nixon. Right. Wow. It does seem like. One of the lessons that the right learned coming out of the Nixon impeachment um, and resignation was that it would help them if they could build a kind of information ecosystem where they could control the flow of information. You know, a lot of people do say that if you had Fox News and you had right wing talk radio in 1974, maybe things end a little bit differently for for Richard Nixon. And that, I think, is probably the biggest change we've seen in the Republican part over that span of two generations. It's this movement from, you know, kind of a reality-based information <laughs> ecosystem to one in which you can, you know, control what your supporters believe. And, you know, to some extent, I think that has metastasized to the point where it hurts them because, you know, they haven't done well in the last few elections and it can be inconvenient when you've got to cater to constituents who are completely untethered from reality. Because sometimes you might want to say, actually, we really do need to do this, but you've now kind of created this Frankenstein's monster that is set on believing the fantasy that you've sold them over years or decades or, or whatever it's been. But um, yeah, I mean, I do think that, you know, it's been, and you can track it across like different sectors of American politics, right? You could tell a parallel story 
with respect to Roe v. Wade, which was around the same time in the early 70s and what's happened on the Supreme Court. It's this concerted movement on the right to create separate institutions, especially around ideas and information, to create like their own ecosystem for information um, that isn't tethered to, you know, what they would call the mainstream media. And that then creates for them the kind of constituencies that they need to support their agenda. So in that sense, yeah, I do think there's a story you can tell going back to the early 70s. You know, I, I also think this is the, the the act of a desperate party, right, who on the margins needs every single last vote they can possibly stir up from everywhere, which is probably the other reason why no one wants to alienate Trump, because they need all every last little bit of that, plus these other what you'd call, I guess, normal Republicans who would just vote Republican because they can't stand Biden, right? They can't stand how all the policies and all these different things. So you can mix that together and somehow find a path. Uh, and even though you want to say that, you know, Biden won by 10 million votes or whatever, uh, you know, what, what does it come down to? Uh, is it like 30,000 votes across three states? 40, yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, a little more, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really where, where we're at. And, uh, and, and, and interestingly enough, even just to reflect on, like, on Hillary's campaign, the fact that they didn't realize that, right? Like, they didn't seem to understand that this was really going to come down right. to, you know, less, that was less. That, that might have been 30,000 votes in three states. Um, you know, it was a colossal failure that you only hope that won't be made again. Um, but uh, I do feel like, um, they're, they're, yeah, the, the, the notion of what, what they're looking for to do is, is rooted directly back in the fact that Cheney and those guys thought that Nixon could have survived Watergate and should have survived Watergate. Um, yeah. And it was a deep state and all that stuff. By the way, it was a deep state, right? Mark Felt, number two in the FBI, realized what was going on and went to the, you know, Woodward and Bernstein and basically was the backstop of democracy as the deep state. Like maybe they're not so wrong in sort of espousing that idea. Right. Well, what what I find interesting is this new notion that there, that the deep state is somehow weaponized against the right. You know, it's like every single leader of the director of the FBI in the history of the country has been a Republican. There's never been a Democrat. If you look at the targets of the so-called deep state over most of the history of its existence, it's been people on the left. Um, you're right that in that, in the case of Mark Felt, that's, that's an example of where uh, it, it, it was, uh, if you want to call it the deep state, um, led to, to, you know, bad news for Republicans. But for the most part, I mean, if you read any history of, of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, intelligence more broadly, it's targeted forces on the left. Um, so this notion, and I mean, Christopher Ray was mocking it two days ago or whatever, when he was in front of Congress, this notion that somehow the, 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 the FBI, led by Christopher Ray, a lifelong Republican and a conservative one, a member, I think, of the Federalist Society and just a track record of conservative activism and involvement, that somehow that so-called deep state is weaponized against the right is really ridiculous. But yeah, I mean, this notion of a deep state has been popular historically on the left as a way of criticizing um, you know, the way that regardless of, of, of administration, there's um, policing and, and targeting of left-wing activism. So 
yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's ridiculous to talk about the idea of a deep state. I do think it's ridiculous to talk about the idea of a deep state that's somehow weaponized, particularly against conservatives. Uh, yeah, a great point. I mean, by the way, it, it, being on a campus, uh, the, the, the other notion of this woke campus thing, a virus across the entire uh, country, uh, Jared rails against it all the time. I think you could probably weigh in as well. I, I think the notion that like every professor across every country, uh, uh, across every uh, college uh, is this radical left wing, you know, commie trying to indoctrinate <laughs> it is also uh, a, a ridiculousness of which, though, uh, Ron DeSantis has very successfully made this a, a wedge issue. Right. And he's going to. Uh, probably force everybody else in the GOP to have to have a hardline stance against things like DEI. Yeah, they want to run on it. I mean, I think it's like an indication that they don't have much else to run on, but it's a wedge issue that seems like it can be sort of effective at, at times. I mean, the dominant force at universities is, you know, neoliberal economics, but it is, you know, I mean, there's a, there is a kernel of an issue there in terms of uh, the prevalence of, I wouldn't call it woke politics, but DEI, diversity, equity, inclusivity, is prevalent on college campuses and elsewhere throughout the society, right? Like you just saw it in the negotiation over the uh, the funding for the Department of Defense. Um, you know, they, they're really committed to DEI policies as well and practices in, in the Pentagon because they know how important it is to having a unified, integrated, military, diverse um, diverse military, but, um, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's like, there's DEI on campus. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it's not the caricature of course that Ron Santis makes it out to be. And, um, you know, but, but there's a kernel of, uh, of an issue there. Of course, I would disagree with him as to whether DEI is like a force for justice. I think on the whole DEI is something that is beneficial to institutions and universities in particular, I mean, I just started teaching a class in the last couple of years called Power, Privilege, and Resistance on White Supremacy. Uh, I don't think it's bad that the students at the University of Laverne are taking a class like that. Um, there's, 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 and there's certainly nothing like woke about it in the sense that, you know, it's going to in some way prejudice students against, I don't know what, white people, maybe. I don't see how learning the the history of race and racism inherently um, leads to a prejudice against white people. That certainly never happened for any of my students. I'll say that. Right. Well, and, and you know that, but that's the the insecurity. I mean, there's a lot of people in the GOP are, are like, they're just not well, right? They're, they're not people who have self-reflection. They're not people who uh, have any kind of sort of deep thinking about these issues. Uh, I mean, the real weighing you have to deal with is whether or not like a DeSantis believes what he's saying. You know, he says it with such conviction at this point that you kind of feel like, okay, I think he 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 is he's whipped himself up into believing this stuff, having already you know been to Harvard. He's he's a well-educated person who should know a lot better, and certainly should recognize the value just rationally of of you know approaching situations where you're maybe you're unfamiliar, uncomfortable in a you know a way that's respectful to other people. I mean, that's really all this is. Um, and I never thought, I guess, in, in theory, by 2023 in this country, that we'd get to the point where you could whip up so many people against this. And that, I, I mentioned this in the last mm -hmm. podcast. When you start seeing like, and I, maybe I just have an interesting impression of, of women in general, of just sort of being nicer 
nicer people and like you know but when you see sometimes especially on the, and the twitter feeds are popping up and it's these women who are really angry and, and channeling it in a way that and again I, it's not that like women can't be angry um i just sort of in, in my you know in my small sphere of my life i guess i like to think that women are, are more rational and they're nicer and they're whatever and so they've been able to tap into across gender here on this thing and that's what's so scary to me is that people want this right people are going to read that new york times article and say, yeah, we got to get Fauci out of there. We've got to stop the CDC from spreading, you know, from mm-hmm. doing all this damage. The WHO is mm-hmm. out of control. We have to mm-hmm. somehow, you know, because we can prove that this uh, this COVID came from a a, a lab in, in China. Well, th- then that's mm-hmm. everything. That's that's the whole thing right there. We have to do all the other things to, to control mm-hmm. this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. that, that's what's so frightening to me. And I suppose it's it's rooted in some sort of a personality trait that a lot of people uh, on that side have uh, that doesn't allow them, I think, to to sort of think any more rationally. Well, you know, you know what, you know what, I wanted to mention. I don't know if you saw this ad that that came out. I think it's from the DNC this week, but I think a lot of what you're talking about is fueled by the kind of carnival of it all. And you know, Trump, yeah, he's a clownish figure, but. You know, he's an entertaining clown for the people who love him. And that's why Ron DeSantis can't get any traction, because if you see him in these one-on-one interactions, he's just not fun. Um, if you watch a Trump rally, like, people are having a good time. And I guess, you know, hey, you never thought that, like, people like Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor yeah. Greene would would, would um, advance the, the, the feminist cause. But I guess for Nick Houselman, they've shown that women are equal to men in their ability to to, to be obnoxiously offensive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, obviously <laughs> offensive. Really, I'm going to hijack this for a second because you know, and it, it, DeSantis, you know, tanking here. And I know it's really early, and we have to remember that. Like even you know, Joe Biden. I said this to you on the way out yesterday in, the, in my house. You know, Joe Biden was done right, and in, in South Carolina until you know Obama went to uh, Buttigieg and um, Klobuchar and said, "Get the hell out of the race." Uh, we'll give you a, well, actually, Kobachar didn't get anything, but uh, Buttigieg got a, a cabinet position and uh, and they galvanized behind him. And it, right. I mean, I think that's been proven, right, that that oh, yeah. st- oh, st- yeah. stood and do that to resuscitate was what was clearly a completely dead. Uh, and you know what, for, for what we're seeing even now, like there's some reasons why he wasn't doing well. Uh, so, but, but Dennis is losing money, right? They are almost out of money. They're firing a lot of people now. Um, he really is, uh, it's psychopathic is too mean a word, but like, there's something personality wise with his laugh and the whole thing. It's, it's really off putting, um, and anger, you know, on the national stage doesn't work as well. Sadistic. So I would say sadistic with sadistic, what he did yeah. with- the migrants. One sec. I'm just letting out my dog. Okay. Keep going. I can hear you. That that whole thing is a real problem. Uh, that people are not mm-hmm. going to. But what's interesting is they're not even um, galvanizing around him in the primary, which you think you'd have some leeway there. He's way down. But I did want to bring uh, into the conversation. We haven't talked about this person yet before, but uh, Vivek uh, Ram uh, Ramasa, Ramaswamy, excuse me, who uh, is kind of coming out of nowhere to sort of insert himself. And I got to give him credit. Whoever his comms department is, is really good because they've gotten him on uh, very high uh, watched uh, shows, right? He's getting a book on all these shows. Um, he's from the Harvard ecosystem, right? I mean, I believe he went to Harvard. So, so he, he sounds smart. He speaks fast and he, and he mm-hmm. renunciates and he, he has energy and he's younger. Mm-hmm. I want to play you a little quick trip. He was on, um, he went to Tucker Carlson's uh, white nationalist hootenanny and racist hour um to speak uh at this conference he had 
I'm going to play a little clip, uh, clip of this. Uh, this is sort of impromptu. I just wanted to bring it in. I wasn't even prepared. Let's see how this sounds, and, and I'll, I'll try and edit it uh, live. Here we go. It's pretty scary. Um, so let's just go through the list. One thing you can't say is that maybe January 6th, while appalling on one level, maybe it was not an insurrection. So let me, let me talk about I've, I, haven't, I haven't talked about this much in the campaign. I'll be very honest with you. You want to know what caused January 6th? There's such a temptation to say that there's one man whose name is unspeakable. We well, can't. No, first of all, it's QAnon. Put up. It's QAnon. It's QAnon. <laughs> you want to know what caused January 6th? Is pervasive censorship in this country in the lead up to January 6th. You tell people in this country they cannot speak. That is when they scream. You tell people they cannot scream. That is when they tear things down. And so the reality is... We were told that you could not question where the virus came from when we all knew it came from a lab in Wuhan, which now they admit. We were told that you could not send a private message to someone on the eve of an election that Hunter Biden's laptop story was actually a true story worth considering before an election. You were systematically suppressed. So this is, think about this. You told you had to be locked down, had to take a vaccine that was mandated and forced down your throat, stay locked down in your home while Antifa and BLM roam and burn the streets of this country. So that's the lead up of one full year of telling people you have to shut up, sit down and do as you're told. And then you tell them, okay, there's an election where you didn't get the information that you needed, such as the Hunter Biden laptop story being real and suppressed. I'm sorry. I, we don't need to keep going. But yeah. I, ironically, he even tried to preface it saying, well, I, don't, I haven't talked about this on the, on the campaign yeah. much. This is all he talks about. This is everything he does. Um, have you seen this person before? Oh, yeah. But, you know, everything he said is bullshit. Let's just say that. But, but like, put that aside. Let's just bracket that for one second. This idea that um, people with, you know, millions of followers and 4 million viewers on Fox saying that over and over every night are censored, are not allowed to speak. I mean, you're complaining about how you're not allowed to speak in front of 4 million Fox viewers on Tucker Carlson or whatever he gets, you know, more than anybody else in cable news are used to before he got fired. So that's just funny in itself that people like Vivek and Tucker will complain about what you're not allowed to say as they're saying it on a show that's watched by more people than any other news program. I, I, yeah. It, it, I mean, it's the grievance. It's the grievance. I, no one's listening to me as I'm speaking on, you know, but, but 10 million people are watching at the same time. Um, but it, it sounds good. And everyone's like, yeah, no one's listening to you. Even though I, I'm here, I hear you like all those people at those rallies, um, and also, and, it's and bullshit. They, like, we know why they stormed the Capitol, right? Because there have been like some convictions, they've been interviewed. We know that they stormed the Capitol because they believed on the word of their great leader, Donald Trump, that the election had been stolen. It's nothing to do with censorship or what you're allowed to say. They have said that the reason they stormed the Capitol was because they were ordered to do so by the person they trust most, Donald Trump, because the election had been stolen from them. So, this idea that it was because they didn't want to get a vaccine. I mean, it's just complete fantasy. I, I agree. And, and so, but what I'm interested in here is, you know, what he's saying is what this fantasy is saying. It's what Trump is saying, but there is something a little bit different about him. Now, uh, first of all, is there any world that you can picture the GOP, the Republicans uh, choosing uh, an Indian American man to be the presidential candidate? Well, not, I, I don't think he's running to get the nomination. I think he's running to be Trump's vice president. He's doing a pretty good job of that. Okay. I mean, I, 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 I think he's a front runner. You know, but I got to tell you, 
I think that everyone who's running against Trump is simply waiting for all the indictments, hoping that at some point it'll be so untenable for Trump that they'll be like, oh, hey, I've been I've been here. I, here I am. I'm, you remember me? I'm you know. mm-hmm. now. Let me just do this because he's you know, he's polling uh, April 1st. Uh, it, can we use 538? Is that OK? Or are we, is sure, that like, sure. I don't want to you know offend anybody, but let's just use it because it was the first thing that popped up on the Google search. April 1st. Uh, Trump had 46. Uh, DeSantis was at 26.6. And uh, uh, Vivek was at 1.2%. By May 1st, Vivek is at 3.1. Now, again, it's tiny, but it's triple. Yeah. By June 1st, he's at 3.5. And now, as of today, he's 5.5%. So I don't think you can overlook, even though it's, you know, the aggregate is not high. That's a, you know, a five-fold increase over a several, a few months. There's something going on here, and I, and I'm, I guess I'm worried about it in a way because here's the guy that we were worried about. The Santos was going to become. He's going to be. He's going well, to be. You know, more you know what the better has? Yeah. What I think what he has that does, I don't think he's going anywhere. But but at least not this cycle. Maybe maybe next. But um, I think what he has, he, he's probably the Pete Buttigieg of this cycle. You know, running to get some cabinet post, maybe VP. I mean, he's doing well. But I think what he has, for example, like you say, saying the same thing as DeSantis, right? But if you compare Vivek to Santos, even though they're saying more or less the same thing, it's all this anti-woke stuff. DeSantis comes off as like resentful and angry. And Vivek comes off as like the happy warrior. And the story he tells is, you know, I've made it in this country as a person of color. And um, along the way, I learned a lot of lessons. I saw that like the greatness of the American economy was being corrupted by this emphasis on DEI and wokeness or whatever crt uh, but it's a, kind of like a sunny rosy story and so you it's, it's a happy warrior so if you, you think like oh that yeah that, that that that's a beautiful thing to get behind whereas DeSantis, every day it's like you know oh these people are destroying our country it, substantively it's not different from what vivek is saying but like the if you want to you know be happy i guess vivek is kind of your man if you want to be angry which seems like there's more of a constituency for anger in the GOP than it's than it's Trump or 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 DeSantis. You remember that Eddie Murphy sketch on Saturday Night Live when he dresses up like a white person? Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Yeah. yeah. And he goes, you know, I noticed that when white people are alone together, they give each other things for free, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I, what I've noticed, I think, is that certain white people out there, like when they can find a person of color that will dispel, yeah. you know, like affirmative action or, yeah. or they'll try yeah. and pretend like there isn't systematic, yeah. systematic racism and like helps them feel better. They, yeah. they, they can't get enough of that. Oh, I know. Like, and they love it when they can find like a Tim Scott or someone else who like that, who are, are and Clarence Thomas is the, is the poster child for this. Yeah. It's some, you know, in, in a way that it must make them feel better. It must make the, it confirm this notion that like, you know, everyone's is equal here. By the way, the whole Obama thing, the C thing is, is also the, the fuel they have. that says that racism is over. John Roberts, yeah. I think is convinced that there isn't any racism in America oh. because we had a black president. Right. I can't explain it any other way because the guy is supposedly rational, a very smart scholar, and right. yet, um, you know, has made some of these ridiculous decisions on uh, with the Supreme Court that just flies in the face of what the reality is. Uh, you know, the irony is that 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 they're they say they're against affirmative action, and yeah, they actually like love it. They 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 love when they can get someone on Fox who's mm. let's say African American who will you know trash liberal policies and support all their stuff. Um, they, like you said, like they just delight in that um, and will give kind of unlimited airtime to people who are willing to do that. So it is, this is kind of an irony that they're the greatest practitioners of this thing that they, they claim to, right. to resent, but 
right? Yeah. If you're if you're a black man who's willing to stand behind Trump at his rallies, and oh, they're, yeah. they're going to put you, you're going to be on TV, right? That's amazing. And <laughs> you might actually be able to parlay that into, you know, selling shirts or becoming yeah. a little yeah. celebrity, right? Yeah. Like, I, you know, Diamond and Silk are a good example of that as well, right? I think, yeah. Yeah. It's like we got to recruit a black man to tell America that actively recruiting people of color is the destruction of the country. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. And, and by the way, like, you know, I, I, not to put you on the spot, but like, you know, California had gone away from affirmative action. Uh, right. Mm-hmm. Like we had voted yeah. on this. Yeah. yeah. And I needed I looked into it a little bit more clearly. And do you are you familiar with what the results of that were after enough years? Yeah. 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 More or less. More or less. But, you know, the the. Yeah, so it leads to a decline. And I mean, it leads to a decline in the enrol- en- enrollment of, of African-American students and I think Hispanic students as well. But I was reading something about how uh, in the aftermath of um, the affirmative action decision, universities will essentially have to show declining enrollment among historically marginalized communities. Otherwise, it'll be hard for them to say they're adhering to the, oh. the, the, the decision of the court. Like if, if African-American enrollment like stays the same or increases, let's say, or Native American or Hispanic American, um, how are you going to demonstrate in the face of a lawsuit that you're abiding by the court's decision in, in I forget the name of it, but the affirmative action decision. So it almost guarantees that you're going to see declining enrollments among the historically marginalized. But one thing they won't stop, you know, because I work at a university is I can guarantee that they won't stop the commitment at universities to diversity. Because that's, that's now part of the culture. So you can say you can't do affirmative action, but what you'll never be able to do, at least not for the foreseeable future, is get us to stop kind of actively trying to cultivate a diverse community. So we'll just find other ways to do it. Sure. Yeah, we know that's important, right? The college experience yeah. is enriched in infinitely more with a more diverse student body, right? Yeah. I think they, yeah. they know this. And the other thing that they don't want to bring up, which is frustrating to me, is that really what it should be about is, okay, if someone had benefited from affirmative action, and by the way, women, I think, benefited as many as much right. as black people did, um, it really to me is, okay, they got there. How did they do now, you might want to argue, okay, uh, schools aren't going to let you fail out or whatever. They're going to do everything they can. But in theory, you're still going to see instances, especially when you hear the, the disgust that's dripping from the GOP about affirmative action, is that they're, they're not qualified. They should never. Oh, yeah. But you meanwhile, they're as good as every other student that makes it in. Yeah. Did you yeah. ever see, there was a thread, I, I know this is anecdotal, but there was a thread by a guy who had gone to UCLA as an undergrad for a couple of years and then transferred to Harvard. And um, wait, did you do that? What did you do? Undergraduate at UCLA and then PhD at Harvard. So okay. yeah, my trajectory kind of, yeah. So he did this, but he did it as undergrad. I think he went for a couple of years at mm-hmm. UCLA undergrad and then he went to Harvard undergrad. And his description, again, I, I know this isn't like scientific, but mm-hmm. he wanted to make it out like that like UCLA was so much harder and rigorous academically than Harvard was um, in the sense that, you know, once you get in the door, it's like, hey, there's this, you know, there's mm. this notion and whatever. But in reality, uh, you know, but like and, and I said this in the last podcast or a couple of times before, like my dad was a professor of law at IIT Kent in Chicago. Whatever he's teaching is exactly what they're teaching in Harvard Law School. Mm-hmm. Same, mm-hmm. same and now, mm-hmm. whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I found that interesting as well. The notion of, um, you know, like 
there, there, there's this whole thing about how, you know, the benefits of these schools that, that you get by going there. But in reality, I don't know if there's if the rigorousness of the academics is merited uh, compared to mm-hmm. like other good mm-hmm. schools that are not mm-hmm. in the Ivy League. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, it's complicated. I, I only have the experience at the places I've been. But um, one thing you can look at is, for example, in a PhD program, which is what I did, you could say like, okay, we're going to use affirmative action to ensure that we have a diverse uh, pool of admitted students. And then, you know, the students matriculate over whatever, five to eight years they do their PhD. You can then go and look at the final product. You can look at the dissertations mm-hmm. and um, people do that. And, and what, what they find is that these are of comparable quality. So um, the idea, which is of course, just doctrine on the right, that, this means a degradation of quality is actually empirically false. Like that thing that they take without even questioning that it means it's a degradation of the quality of whatever it is, you know, the corporate world or the academic world, it's just not true. And there's a lot of evidence, as you mentioned earlier, that having a you know, diverse, let's say student body um, actually contributes to the academic experience. So, but this is stuff that like you can look at, you know, we don't have to just like, guess, you can actually look at it and see whether, um, you know, let's say a diverse incoming class results in a decline of academic quality. You know, you can, you can study it. Yeah. And I, and, and they, I think they have, I, I'm willing to go on record as saying is that it's, a, it's, it, and they, there's a reason why they are doing it because they see benefits to it. Exactly. Um, you know, and now, I, by the way, I actually like, from the beginning, I would have argued that we should do affirmative action completely independent of the question of diversity or whether it's beneficial to have more. We should just do affirmative action because of the history of white supremacy. We should do it for remedial reasons, for the same reason you might pay reparations. I mean, Brian Stevenson has this, uh, he has several, but, but one, one of his proposals is uh, for reparations you know, because black people, let's say, were excluded from institutions of higher education for X number of decades, why don't we have half tuition for black people at those same public institutions for the same number of decades as a kind of reparative measure? I would support that and actually think that it'd be easier to defend affirmative action programs now if we hadn't premised them on this diversity rationale and from the beginning premised them more on like a social justice argument that it has to do with decades and centuries of exclusion and exploitation. And it's a way to kind of remediate some of that. Um, And then that wouldn't let John Roberts make the argument that he always does, which is premised on this idea that affirmative action is just as racist as Jim Crow segregation. That's, that's kind of the, you know, I teach institutional law and reading all their, their stuff on race is just like excruciating because the premise of all their arguments is that the evil is in a racial distinction itself and not in white supremacy. And that's how they get to this idea that well, any racial classification is equal to any other. So if you do it to advantage historically marginalized people, that's just as bad as when you had Jim Crow and, and, and slavery. Right. And meanwhile, and it's Asian people who are the ones getting the right. most. This, that quality of argument would fail my like, you know, Laverne 100 level power privilege and resistance class. Like on the first day, we sort of define white supremacy in a way that 
excludes that interpretation. Um, so it's just crazy to read coming from these like brightest minds in the Republic, an analysis of race that is so weak that it doesn't even have traction in like the opening chapter of any history of race or book on race and racism. This is immediately eliminated or immediately exposed as a tool of white supremacy, which is really what that is. That kind of colorblindness that Roberts uses is an instrument of white supremacy at the end of the day. And by the way, it goes back to like reconstruction, that kind of argument that all racial classifications are equal goes back to the reconstruction era. Yeah. You know, to, to piggyback on your, on the, uh, how, how to fix this notion. I, you know, if we had slavery in this country for almost 250 years, so I would argue it's probably going to take at least that long to right. kind of overcome these things. And we're only what, a hundred and what, 1865 till now is we're getting whatever that is. I, I don't know whatever that is. It's a hundred. I mean, I would really date the attempt at a true multicultural democracy from, let's say, the Civil Rights Act, so the mid-60s. Because, yeah, it's true that we abolished slavery, but we then had 100 years of just, you know, explicit white, you know, legally enforced white supremacy. And we only began to dismantle that. And of course, we haven't completely, but we only began to dismantle that in the mid-1960s. Yeah. So, you know, you could say... 400 years of white supremacy is going to take maybe that long to dismantle. And that's assuming that we're committed to the project of dismantling it. And as we're discussing, there's a lot of forces in society that don't want to see it dismantled. Well, but, I, yeah, I mean, this wouldn't ahead. be, sorry, this wouldn't be that polarizing in, in a weird way if we had more racist across both parties. Right. But what's interesting we used to, <laughs> Which right, right. and then yeah and thanks thanks nixon um and thanks nixon, Ray. but also obama if you look at the data what happened was not because of anything obama did but just by virtue of being a black man who got elected that polarized the electorate more around race which is kind of amazing to think about but a lot of white democrats for the first time when Obama got elected, came to think about politics through the prism of race. That was the kind of first time they thought, oh, we're the party of black people. And then that sort of finalized that thing that started with the Southern strategy and polarized more dramatically the electorate around race. Wow. That, that, yeah, that is really something we're going to have to study for years and years to come. What the effect of Obama being elected really had uh, hope versus, you know, whatever the opposite of that is, uh, you know, because yeah. in reality, you know, and I, I, I've heard it said in liberal circles uh, that sometimes people think that, you know what, I would have taken Romney in 2012 if it would have prevented Trump from taking over 2016. Oh, well, that, that yeah, I mean, we kind of have that question now. Right. Like that's really what's motivating a lot of these third party candidacies, which are almost certainly going to help Trump. It's like their logic must be that Trump isn't that bad. Right. If you're doing the no labels thing, mm-hmm. it has to be one of your in the back of your mind that if Trump won, it wouldn't be that bad. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. Right. Otherwise, you do what we really need now. I think you and I probably agree is like a united front against fascism. I mean, that's, you know, you and Jared talk about that uh, in spirit all the time that 
we have to like focus on this movement as the real threat to democracy. And anyone who's doing like a third party candidacy or that logic of, you know, wait, maybe I would take Romney if it meant that we could prevent this deeper threat to democracy. That's, that's you know, a pressing question in our politics right now. Just how seriously do you take this threat of fascism? And I take it really seriously. I do believe we should do a united front, but I'm on the left and a lot of people on the left still argue that, you know, uh, Trump isn't a unique threat to democracy. He's more a kind of a continuation of things that have preceded him. So maybe they don't mobilize completely. Maybe they aren't willing to go into an alliance with someone like a, a Mitt Romney. Interesting. I, I mean, yeah, or, or, or you do it where you get Mitt Romney as like the vice presidential candidate next to Joe Biden, some really radical thing like that. Uh, I mean, I remember even thinking of back in the day, McCain and um, Russ Feingold, Right. Who had the McCain-Feingold bill like mm-hmm. they, that can come together for that. Like, why not put him on the ticket when they were running uh, when he was running originally uh, versus what the God? I mean, we're old enough to remember who they forced him to take. Right. Sarah Palin. Is that what yeah. you're talking about? Yeah. Well, no, I would go the other way, though. I don't know if we want to get into this, but I would go the other way. See, I think that kind of concession, that kind of movement to the right isn't what's going to ultimately defeat fascism. I think I'm not a Sanders supporter. You know, when you were talking about Biden in South Carolina, it's like they did that to marginalize Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. Like I think the way to finally and definitively defeat Trumpism is through left-wing populism. He's a right-wing populist. I think you beat him through left-wing populism. I don't think you beat him. I mean, you might, you can win individual elections, you know, but I think like in the long term, the, the, the thing we have to beat is not just Donald Trump. He's going to die and, you know, MAGA fascism is going to live on. If we want to beat that thing, that thing that's the real threat to democratic principles, I think we have to do it by appealing to people, like not just to cynicism and fear, but actually like a positive agenda that will speak to some of those same people that are attracted to Trump. I wanted to mention earlier this ad that the D- I think it's the DNC, but you know, Trump has fun. Trump's funny. Like you go to it. If- not for us. We've probably revolted. But if you watch people at his rallies, they're having a good time. It's like it's a carnival. They dress up. Um, and this ad that came out this week was one of the first ones where I thought, OK, so now we're the ones having fun. I don't know if you saw it. It's this they're like maybe in their third adults, like 30s or 40s, man and a woman in bed. They start to get it on. She gets on top, climbs on top of them. And she says, uh, I mean, it's fun, right? And she says, do you have a condom? And he like reaches for a condom. And at that moment, it cuts to 70-year-old white guy in a suit standing in the corner saying, no, can't do that. We're in charge now. We're banning birth control. And she does all the talking, right? She says like, well, this is our life. You can't tell us what to do. And he says, oh yeah, I can because we won the election. And I'm just going to sit here and watch and make sure you don't do anything illegal. It's a really good ad. And it like allows us to have some fun at their expense. I mean, they've been having fun at our expense for eight years with all the trolling and the, the memes and the, and the dressing up. And, and and we're trying to counter that with like, well, but we're the serious people who will save the democracy. That's fine. Like for now, but ultimately we got to beat them by going on the aggressive, you know? Yeah, well, I'm glad that you're here because you're definitely channeling Jared. Oh, Jared would be a lot meaner to me for even suggesting, you know, having a split ticket like that. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> you're right because there are so many more of them. And we're seeing that, like, with Biden trying to get rid of student debt, for instance. 
That's a real left-wing populist idea. Uh, it, it makes them look so bad when they continue right. to try and strike this down, right? It, I mean, it can't be a winning thing for them, and they're right. desperate not to talk about it. Uh, and they can't wait to talk about Hunter's laptop again to hide the fact, you know, you know, we we got to go. But like, you know, even the fact that they, the guy that they, the whistleblower, right, who they couldn't find for a while, who was supposedly going to blow a thing Hilarious. up, this Israeli guy who was like indicted for arms uh, with China, and then. Um, and then they're like, well, he's just being, you know, that's the deep state putting him away. And then it turns out that he had been, those that charged had been filed from in November, <laughs> you know, they don't care. They still do the narrative of the deep state, even though, yeah, it happened even before Comer started. this whole yeah. thing. You know, what's going to happen is the Trump people, when they go and interview them at the rallies, they, they'll have some, you know, vision or some notion of a sentence about a uh, whistleblower and being arrested. That's all they need to know. And that's all that matters. Oh, yeah. uh, you know. Uh, I thought they, they to, oh, this, I thought it might give them pause a little bit because on the right, they love to do the fear mongering around China. Yeah. So when it comes out, this guy's actually a spy for China. I thought, oh, okay, that's really bad for them. They're going to have to like back off a little bit. But no, they just say, oh, that is a charge filed against him by the deep state because he's a truth teller. <laughs> so yeah. when, when you have the conspiracy mode of, of thinking, which of course they do, then nothing ever counts as evidence against your point of view. You know, right. it can all be inscribed into a deeper level of the conspiracy. Yes. You know, uh, there is this, the notion that like, if you're in an abusive relationship, uh, you know, you could show one of the people pictures of the spouse having an affair and they like would, ref they wouldn't believe it. Right. That's not him. I can't be him. It's not, it's a fake, right. whatever. Like they just can't go there and that they're, they're abused. These are, this is an abusive relationship. And it's one way. <laughs> and it really mm -hmm. is uh, uh, sad for the country. Uh, and I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I, I do feel like some of these indictments are going to start piling on. And it's going to become I like to think it's going to become untenable for Trump to actually continue his campaign. Or they ultimately say we will you know, drop these charges if you don't run, which I'm not even sure would be a thing that they could do as a legal yeah you know, deal. Yeah, right. Like, but, um, you know, cause in my mind, he'd be like, sure, I'll do that. I won't run. And then a month later he'll, he'll start running again, you, you know, even though they, whatever the ballots won't have his name, I don't know. Um, but that would be, uh, you know, then, then he'll do a whole writing campaign, write my name in if I'm not in the ballot, you know? Yeah. You, you can't, I mean, even if he were to agree to that, it would, wouldn't be enforceable. So he could just run. Yeah. That, that's not an option. Yeah. So yeah, anyway. by, by running, I think, right. Isn't it clear to you that the only reason why um, Jack Smith is involved is because he declared his presidency or running for president again? Right. Well, Merrick Garland, I, I see. So, yeah, I think Merrick Garland and was inclined to kind of let it all go just to save the country from the long national nightmare or whatever, which is terrible. But I think he was inclined to let it go. But then when Trump announced he had to kind of forced Garland to appoint a special yeah. But Trump is thinking, of course, that his only way out is to run and win. And we haven't even talked about that, but that's also completely lawless. And then just fire everybody who's doing the investigations and pardon everybody who was involved. Total lawlessness, you know. And he'd get away with it. And he would get away with it if he won the election. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not, I also old enough to remember that there was 10 counts of obstruction of justice that, uh, what you said, Merrick Garland had no intention of prosecuting despite right. the fact that he was now green white, ready to go. And, and uh, Mueller had even said so. And I know Mueller even tried to walk that back, but that was the truth when they that asked. Was the truth, you know. But I mean, forget that. I mean, Garland was just going to let Jan six go. Yeah. I mean, well, they were going to get the people that actually they, they could identify who were in the Capitol. Right, right? But for Trump, he, I yeah. think he was going to let Trump go on Jan six, but yeah. 
like you said, it was when he announced that it sort of forced his hand. And then he picks this guy, Jack Smith, who seems to be a bulldog. Thank God. Yeah. yeah. You know? Well, we'll see what happens there. We'll see if Kennan's going to delay the, the trials after the election, which is, you know, not out of the realm of possibility. Um, and that might trigger something bad for her. But uh, either way, uh, listen, I, I can't thank you enough, Jason, for coming on. This was a great conversation. It went places I didn't even anticipate, uh, but we're, we're much smarter because of it. So uh, thank you. anything else we need to be aware of that's out there that you want to call attention to? I guess your book again, you want to just throw that out there? Yeah, Frameworks of Time and Rousseau, co-edited with Masano Yamashita at the University of Colorado. And then in the next, I don't know, few years, look for my book, which is tentatively called Rousseau's Cultural Politics. Okay, so there's something to be said. That there's a theme here. I'm, I'm, I'm sensing. Yeah, work on Jean-Jacques Rousseau. That. <laughs> Check it out at Needleman.com. All right, thank you so much. Rousseauassociation.com. <laughs> okay, you got it. And uh, thanks, everybody out there for listening. And uh, Jay will be back again for our weekender this, later this week. So stay tuned for that. And um, please uh, stay safe out there. 